if somebody comes to me and said, you know, hey, what's the value of data or what is this hype about machine learning or artificial intelligence? Uh, for me, the real usage of it is that diabetes is all about numbers and math and data, right? So uh, I can write a simple algorithm that can make a prediction that, you know, based on this much insulin or, you know, this much carb, his blood glucose is going to be in this range for the next half an hour. But if I have that larger pool of data, I have the compute power that I can now use machine learning, use other factors so like, you know, weight, age, you know, uh, are you doing workout or you're not doing workout? Uh, last time that you had Big Mac at McDonald's, you know, your, your body reaction to insulin and the carb like this. And then be able to predict that, hey, you know, in the next two hours or three hours, your blood glucose is going to be in this range. It gives me more flexibility to better manage this. Welcome to another episode of the Data Binge Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Russell. And if this is your first time listening, welcome to a series of conversations with technologists talking about some major themes in today's ecosystem of hyperscale cloud computing, real scenarios of how AI is shaping human and organizational capacities. And you'll find as well that we spend a lot of time focusing on the innate qualities of human productivity and the desire for high-performance lifestyles, whether that is solving problems at work, at home in the family environment, or with one's self through mindfulness practices and self-awareness. These talks are an opportunity to discuss technology, but the mission is to better understand and learn how to work cohesively with this technology as it augments the human species and changes the way we operate within and perceive the world. Ali Mazahari joins us on today's episode. Ali is currently a chief architect at the Microsoft Technology Center in Irvine, California, specializing in application development and open source software. He spent the last 14 years at Microsoft in various customer-facing technical roles. He spent his early career developing software in various industries, including financial services and banking, and has been writing code since the age of 19. And as you'll see, his love and passion for technology bleeds through both technically and philosophically throughout our talk. Ali is also a thought leader and technical contributor to the biomedical industry and community through his work with Continuous Glucose Monitoring Solutions. And we'll talk about the organizations and solutions that he helps to represent, including Night Scout, Tidepool, and Loop. His technical background is in computer science and mathematics, formerly educated at the Islamic Azad University in Tehran, Iran. Ali, in every bit of his ethos, represents the current landscape of communal open source culture, where opportunities for interoperability, sharing vulnerabilities, learning from others, and contributing strengths in this pay-it-forward model is helping him make meaningful impacts across to his customers, his community, and as you will soon hear, his family as well. We spend some time talking about why there's been so much attention to open source technology. As many of you know from all the M&A activity in this space, we've been hearing constantly. But most importantly, what we hear and learn most from in this conversation with Ali 
is the very personal journey that his family, and more specifically his son Sam, is facing in the wake of a genetic autoimmune disease, diabetes type 1. His family's personal story is really a beautiful story of how technology and culture can co-develop for truly life-changing outcomes. And we learn about the progress of going from being bitter to being better and how some of the biggest of life's challenges can help us capitalize on improving the current state of ourselves, our families, and the broader community. What an episode. If you haven't done so already, please rate and leave a comment about the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps me better circulate the content so I can better serve you through great guests and conversations. The episode is also available on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Podcasts. Now I bring you Ali Mazahiri. Ali, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me in your Microsoft Technology Center. I know it took us some time to schedule this, but everybody's busy, including you and I, right? <laughs> yeah, and we're in the, we're in Surf City for those that are just listening. Um, and I've been trying to get on your schedule for a while. And just quickly, how we know each other, I got hired on about two years ago, and I was around the Microsoft Technology Center quite a bit because you guys do all these different upskillings and you're teaching customers new things and the art of the possible. I'll let you get into that stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but right away, I realized just how incredibly inclusive that you are. You have this high amount of energy. I've never heard you say no to anything from colleagues or customers. And I'd love to just learn more about you here. So I'm really excited to, to finally get this chance to talk to you and we'll have some fun today. Time flies, man. Interestingly enough, I remember when I first met you, I was talking about this story to a customer of yours. And you came to me and you started asking about, you know, how this happened, what are you doing with the data, so on and so forth. So ever since, it's been a great ride with you. And we've done some quite interesting gigs together with your customers and my customers, right? We have. We've made some really big impacts and it's been super fun. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be uh, this chief architect of the Microsoft Technology Center and what, what the Microsoft Technology Center is and sure. your story. Sure. So I joined Microsoft about 14 years ago, this past March. And when I joined, I never thought I'm going to stay around for this many years. Uh, I came from Intuit, and uh, I always had the passion to work for Microsoft, and uh, things to start kind of aligned, and here I am 14 years later. And uh, what we do, initially I was part of Microsoft Services, so like you guys, we were at the field going and meeting with the customers and implementing enterprise solutions when there were no clouds. <laughs> But uh, at a technology center, you, you said it perfectly. I mean, uh, this is a customer-facing facility. We are very open. Uh, we always want to provide this white glove service. And to our team members, customer is not just like Microsoft customer. You are the customer. So we have internal customers. We have partners as customers. And we have the customer customer. And one thing that we try to convey the message is that you can always make things happen when everybody works as a team. And this is one of our major goals. Uh, we have this art of you know, being a great facilitator. Uh, in fact, whenever we hire new team members, 
they usually come from a deep technical background, but uh, the transition period is for them to really kind of getting out of that being a technical geek to somebody who can facilitate, who can understand business problems and be able to translate them to uh, feature functionality solutions. And uh, we have 14 locations in the U.S. I believe the last number I heard was 52 worldwide. And all these MTC centers, uh, they provide you the same services. So like you, you have customers that they may be in multiple regions. And the goal is when they come to MTC in Irvine and they do a engagements, if the other team members from your customer goes to MTC in Boston or in Denver, they're going to see the exact same process and same features and capability that we can share with them as a customer. Very cool. Very cool. And just when you walk into this place, I mean, there's so much thought put into the experience. This is one of the I like occupying this space more than any space I've ever occupied. Am I ever? I'd mean, rather be here than, you know, at home in the library, mm-hmm. whatever it is. It's just very well lit, um, very accommodating. Mm-hmm. You walk in, there's uh, technology all over the place, state of the art. So you just feel like you are literally in the workplace of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I think your team does a really good job of facilitating this warmth and you know, the, the exquisite candies <laughs> and all yeah. of the little things. The hospitality. That, I mean, that's, that's, that's what, what it, it is. is. Hospitality, yep. hospitality. Yep. Yep. And you're merging this hospitality with in a learning environment. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just an incredible experience when you can learn and it's a safe place to learn and there's no bad questions. And, you know, you're eating chocolates and drinking coffee like crazy and all those different things. Um, so in terms of your background, mm-hmm. um, a lot of app development, and you're you're wearing this this shirt. I see dev people. It's just uh, my favorite t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. So, can you just talk about you know what you've done in that space mm-hmm. and a little bit about what you're still passionate about and what that looks like today? Yeah, it, it's a funny story. So, uh, my background back in college is applied mathematics and computer science. Of course, when I went to college, and this was way way back before. In, Te- in Tehran, in right? In Tehran, yeah. I'm, I'm originally from Iran, so uh, I was born in Tehran, and I uh, got my degree back then. And of course, you know, when I went to college, we were talking about IBM 360 and, you know, uh, machine language and, you know, all these mathematical problems, and you will just think, why am I doing this? Like, you know, what's going on? Uh, I started working because my dad pushed me that, hey, you know, you have to go and be on your own, which is a kind of different when you think about culturally in Iran versus in U.S. right now, you know, that's very norm. You're done with high school or even during high school, you start working, kind of get into that mood that, hey, you know, you, you need out. to be on your own and, you know, be uh, uh, independent. Back in my country, that wasn't the case. But my dad pushed me that, hey, you know, you need to go and start working in that field. So I started writing software when I was 19 years old. I'm 47, 48. I'm not scared of telling you my age. Yeah. But uh, the first time I started writing, and it was in uh, Turbo Pascal, the very first application I was used to, and I used to work for a bank uh, in Tehran. That gave me this joy that, like, you know, has been pushing me ever since. It's like really uh, growing a kid, right? You know, you see it starts 
as an intuition, as something, as an idea, and then you make it real. To me, software development is all about that. Uh, so finished college, and ever since I've been working in different companies, different businesses, I used to do a lot of uh, application development uh, development for airports, like uh, here, Lava, LAX. I did projects uh, for the Boston airport, Massport. And uh, since early ages, I was always about like, you know, interoperability, being open. Uh, back then, there were no concept of open source. <laughs> and, uh, but making sure that whatever that you write as a code or as a software, it's something that is not going to be this closed thing that nobody can do anything with it. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, way back when, uh, when we had Novell and Netfair, I was all about that. I wasn't even a big fan of Microsoft back then. It was just like Windows, but, uh, somehow the destiny turned me to the other side and, uh, Ever since I started working with Microsoft technology, I've become a huge fan. And you're, you're talking about this this thing, this open source thing. Mm -hmm. And people don't, don't like. I don't have a technology background. I wasn't uh, developing in Pascal and <laughs> very very mathematics oriented mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, technology. So and there's all this stuff going on in the news, like Microsoft mm -hmm. uh, acquired GitHub, yep. and then IBM made a big acquisition red hat red hat mm -hmm. and it seems like this whole everything is becoming community oriented mm -hmm. open and just doing some reading uh on open source i just pulled out these four mm -hmm. themes and the themes are it's a it's a free a free remix and a distribution anyone could could tap into it um you get actual access to the source and mm -hmm. i've seen that from even customers going mm -hmm. into github and pulling code algorithms, whatever, and using it. Um, it's this cooperative nature of people helping each other. Again, going back to the community. And it this was interesting. It's the end to predatory vendor lock-in. So you're not having to buy some black box ecosystem that you have to, to live in. Like, why, why is everyone moving towards this? Like, why is this so important right now? I think the third item that you brought up the cultural aspect of it, to me, is the most important part. Uh, I used to hear that, hey, you know, when you say open source is all about free software. <laughs> it's <laughs> not the case, right? I mean, Red Hat is a huge business. All the other vendors that they do open source. Uh, so there is a business element of it. But the cultural aspect of it is super important. Uh, and one thing that I learned in my past four and a half years that I became serious because of everything that happened to our personal life, which we're going to talk about it, was that you don't have to be a technologist to be able to contribute to an open source project. I mean, you can have zero knowledge of computer or software and still be able to contribute and chime in. It's the whole notion of pay it forward. And uh, as you might have heard, uh, GitHub announced this very awesome initiative, uh, GitHub Sponsors. And this is where that, you know, somebody can start something super impactful just during, you know, his or her spare time that can make a change in somebody's life. And if I can jump in and do a pull request or participate or contribute uh, to write code, perhaps I can just, you know, 
support financially however I want. And this kind of gives the the fuel for the engine so they keep going, right? Uh, and to me, bringing the people together with different background, with different knowledge base uh, to do something good and be able to share that, to me, that's the open source. Promise. And it seems like culturally that's where Microsoft is going. Oh, absolutely. And maybe there's some defensive actions from other players in the industry because they see that's where the, the Microsoft is going and, and where we're going. Um, so to tell us more about, you know, you, you mentioned your family and you mentioned, mm -hmm. and, I, and I've heard, you know, what you've been doing and yep. how you've been leading this really amazing crusade mm -hmm. against global disease, mm -hmm. um, uh, diabetes type two, type one, type one, I'm sorry, yep. type one. Um, and, uh, I'd love to, for you to talk more about like what that is and, sure. and, and in the aperture of my vision, I have this, 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 this contraption here. There's leg, <laughs> there's Legos and there's like, there's, you know, Intel chips and yep. there's monitoring devices and you have an Alexa device here. Yep. Yep. Like let's, let's talk about what, you know, what you've sure. been doing. Yep. So, uh, we need to travel back in time, uh, both myself and my wife, we have history in a family with type two diabetes. And this is one of the areas that uh, we don't have enough clarity about the difference between the two. So type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two genes that if you carry those two genes, you're receptive to have this condition. Something triggers it. They're still you know, doing a lot of research. People doing a lot of research to figure out what's triggering this or what uh, factors, like any other autoimmune condition that's still work in progress, so we really don't know. And when it triggers, basically your T cells, your white cells start attacking your uh, beta cells on your pancreas, which they're in charge of generating insulin, insulin. and other hormones that regulate your blood glucose. And pretty much your pancreas stops working. Uh, in most cases, the onset is going to happen in, during the childhood, but we have people that they develop this condition in their 40s or even, you know, uh, 50s. So with us having history in type 2 diabetes, like my grandfather on my wife's side, you know, her siblings, we've always had this fear of this condition because if it's not being managed, it's a deadly disease and... We always say that, you know, it can kill you slowly. It's not a sudden death. And for those that don't know what type 2 diabetes is, that's dietary. So you've just been... It could be so many different factors. Basically, you know, uh, uh, your your system generates insulin, but is not effective enough to still be able to regulate, right? You know, somebody who doesn't have type 2. Mm -hmm. Of course, things like diet and exercise, sometimes medicine, you know, is going to help you. And in a severe condition, you're going to be insulin dependent. Mm -hmm. But for somebody who has type 1, they survive on insulin because there's no way that their pancreas can generate the insulin that the, the body needs to regulate the, the blood glucose. So uh, with my son, out of the blue, uh, four years ago, five years ago, we were um, planning our summer's vacation during the same time that we are right now. And uh, my wife took him for a regular checkup. And uh, 
at 2 a.m., we got a call from doctor that you have to take him to hospital, to chalk. And uh, his blood glucose was around like 500, which is very high. So we took him to the hospital, and that night, in like a matter of two hours, our doctor, Endo, Dr. Mangu, came, and they gave us the news. And that moment, it was more like a blackout. I mean, I, I was just like shattered because the word diabetes was just like so devastating for both of us. Because of your family history. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, even though back then type 1 was kind of a little bit unknown, I still like most people couldn't distinguish the differences between the two. But that's how, you know, we got into this you know, new normal. I remember I went to the, the next door. I was crying. And uh, interestingly enough, the day before that, we had this offsite at work. And we were at Palm Spring. And we had one of these motivational speakers. That was the, the last session of, you know, the three-day summit that we had. Uh, he mentioned it was just like this one sentence that kind of went into my brain and and I would never, ever forget that. And he said that in a moment of crisis, try to be better versus bitter. And all of a sudden, you know, that came to my mind. I said, okay, let's figure out what we can do. So I started immediately going to Twitter. I'm a, like yourself. Twitter fiend. Very, like, active on, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn. Not much on, you know, Facebook and other social medias. And try to figure out what's going on. So even immediately there were like a bunch of stuff. I see people, they're doing a lot of efforts, research, whether it's stem cell or, you know, trying to use, you know, devices. But still, you know, it was more like I was very confused. Fortunately, when we talked to our endo, he mentioned that, hey, you know, there are other families that they're dealing with the same thing, same age. Back then, Sam was nine years old. And why don't you just start having a chat with them? So we met with another family in Irvine, uh, Ed Raskin, who became a good friend of mine. And through him, I was introduced to this awesome group of people, either with type 1 diabetes or non-type 1 that they were doing or working on this open source project called Night Scout. So I attended one of their gathering in Anaheim, and that was the start. I instantly clicked, and the very first thing that came to my mind was that, okay, you know, I'm working for Microsoft. Let's see what can we do and how can we help. So that relation kind of started growing and growing. Uh, through that, I found out that there are other Microsoft leaders like Scott Hanselman and others that they do have type 1 uh, diabetes and they're working with the same team, same Night Scout team. And we started, you know, collaborating. And uh, this was like four years ago. And I will sh share with you, there's a, a Twitter thread when I, that I did for his uh, fourth anniversary of, you know, using this artificial pancreas that has all the history, you know, how we started it. And interestingly enough, you know, Satya got involved and we managed to 
get a lot of support from Satya, Scott Godfrey to provide like uh, Azure passes to families that they wanted to have this solution on Azure for remote monitoring and the whole Night Scout project just like exploded. And ever since it's been a great experience to be able to share what we have as a technology company to make sure we can make some impact with our families. And I mean, it's a, it's, and I have two children and mm-hmm. I don't know, I mean, for me, I had to look at the difference between type one and type two diabetes a million times before mm-hmm. our talk. And I still screwed up the, mm-hmm. the order. So you know, for me, there's no schema for how critical it, it could be mm-hmm. for your life and your well-being. And um, it, it looks like 3 million kids in the U.S. have type 1 diabetes yep. every year. Um, it looks like 30,000 new cases. Um, 29 million for U.S. adults uh, in the U.S. And one in four don't even know that they have it, That's which true. is, which I mean, it's, it's, a, it's definitely an epidemic. Mm-hmm. And when I was trying to find out how parents felt about this, just from listening to you, one of the quotes that I pulled, and I think it was from the Night Scouts mm-hmm. website, and I'll, I'll put all these different yep, links yep. in the show notes. And, it, and, and this person said, there were a bunch of tests and a bunch of drugs. You get dire warnings, quote, be careful you don't kill your kid and good luck. That's true. That's that's what they that's what they tell you at the hospital, right? That's insane. They give you like, hey, this is your new life. This is your you know new normal, and you give them less insulin, they're gonna go to coma. You give them too much insulin, they're gonna die. And this is the scariest part of this condition, especially when you have small kids, is that you need to be up twenty four seven because if their blood glucose goes that low. They become unconscious, and if you're not around them, they can lose their life, right? Fortunately enough, by the time that Sam was diagnosed, we had enough you know, technologies around us to be able to better manage this. So the first thing we did was we, uh, we talked to the doctor and you know, my friend Ed, and we started using this uh, technology called continuous glucose monitoring which is uh, being manufactured by a couple of companies. Dexcom, Dexcom is the one that we're yeah. using that you and I, we both know yeah. very well. And that was the beginning. So with the CGM, at least, you know, I can get this semi-real time. is like every five minutes. It uses the interstitial fluid and converts this to a reading that tells you your blood glucose. Like, uh, And by using Night Scout back then, it gave us as a parent or caregiver to have remote access to their data. So that screen in front of you, as you can see, this is Sam's number as we speak real time that uh, the sensor generates the the number. And by using a, a smartphone, we send this to Azure or other cloud providers. And this Node.js application, which is one of the best thing that I've used <laughs> in my... Uh, career, it gives me that all the insights. So then I can make decision if, you know, I need to give him more insulin or less. If he, if he's at school, we can contact the nurse or we can send him a text now. So that was the first step, remote monitoring. And what happened after that was that, okay, this is great, but I don't want to keep staring at the, uh, the web app, right? Yeah. Or, you know, just the data. I want to get the notification on my watch or on my phone. And for me, the real journey of like using Azure as an application platform started with 
this condition. And that's how I started, you know, using some uh, components of Azure like uh, uh, notification hubs and later on Cosmos DB. And right now we're at a point that every time something happens, my wife, myself, even Sam, they get notification on their phone, on the watch, and we always, you know, know what's going on. So you, so you have this, this, uh, Technology. It's mm-hmm. it's it's this um, constant glucose monitoring, mm-hmm. and then it the, dev- the it, it showcases the device and what is coming in from the device to the web, a web based mm-hmm. application. Mm-hmm. But you have a sensor that's on the skin. Yes. Um, and it's the sensor is essentially operating on the on the edge, uh, and it's sending wireless data, um, and that wireless data gets visualized and we're looking at this visualization. Yep. It looks like almost like a stock, like a, an equity chart graph yep. or something yep. very complicated. Yep. Um, and then your smartphone downloads the data to the app. Yes. His, his phone. Okay. So basically phone. Okay. we, we use that data and we push it to the cloud. Uh, nowadays Dexcom, they have their own solution. It's called Dexcom, uh, follow and share. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but when we started four years ago, uh, we didn't have that option. And that was the genesis of like, you know, these awesome community members coming together and making Night Scout. Got it. That was a need from a caregiver and parent that we didn't have access to the data. Nowadays, you know, Dexcom has the same solution. It's all supported by Dexcom. Everybody's using it. But four years ago, I mean, this, I mean, to me, this is already incredible. Obviously, we have this new technology where Yelp is able to send you notifications mm-hmm. when you're, mm-hmm. you know, beacon technology and things yep. like that. But I mean, even a year ago, this is still super, super valid yeah. technology. And it still is. I mean, yeah. here's the thing. I mean, you work with data, you help customers, you know, leverage the potential of the data. Is that if it's a black box, I can't do much with it. But when I have access to the raw data, I can do a lot of stuff. Anything you want. Anything yeah. I want, right? Yeah. And Interestingly enough, that was the next phase. So we started with the, the monitoring, which was great, but there were still a lot of manual intervention, like, you know, ask pump or, you know, do a pen injection for this much of insulin. And uh, when you use pump, there is this concept of uh, basal, which is a, a continuous amount of insulin that is, you do it like, you know, every uh, uh, couple of minutes or, you know, every hour, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of levels your blood glucose or regulate it in a long-term basis, 24 hour. Mm-hmm. And then you have bolus, which is basically, if you want to have pizza, you know that this amount of carb, there are lots of other factors, but your, your system based on your needs and your age, you need this much insulin. And still, you know, you need to manually do all this. So this is, Hard for an adult, imagine for a nine-year-old or, you know, a 10-year-old. And we talked about interoperability, right? Uh, four years ago, or even up to a couple of weeks ago, you have all these manufacturers that they do bits and pieces uh, of, like, somebody creates a pump, somebody does CGM. But they didn't talk to each other. So I had the insight, I'm getting the data from the CGM, I have the pump, but they cannot talk to each other. So what happened, uh, there's this notion of artificial pancreas or closed loop, meaning that you have this system 
that can get data from a sensor, data from the pump, and then do some mathematical like calculation using the algorithm to predict, you know, okay, based on all this factors, your blood glucose is going to go up or go down. Mm -hmm. I'm going to simplify it right now. But, and then based on that, make a decision if you need more insulin or less. So a couple of, you know, team members from Night Scout, they kind of took this to the next level, uh, a couple in Seattle, uh, Dana and Scott. And they started working on, you know, building an artificial pancreas, a closed-loop system. Uh, another funding member of Night Scout, Ben West, uh, he has type 1 diabetes. He works with Dexcom, actually, uh, today. But he spent, like, seven years of his time reverse engineering to figure out, you know, how the pump receives signals and commands. And he found out a way to remotely, you know, send commands programmatically to the pump, which was huge. I mean, that was yeah. the, the first step. So uh, back in 2014, uh, the couple in Seattle, Scott and Dana, they managed to start, you know, building the very early version of this closed loop. And basically, we started automating this process. So now instead of you doing this manually, there is a system that can goes and doing this every five minutes automatically and adjust your insulin. Which is life-changing because is life -changing. if you're a kid and you're running up and down the stairs, like you don't know. There's so many things like, you know, and, and so Dana started, you know, sharing the results. And back then it was just like, hey, you know, yes, we did this. We are sharing what we're doing, but we cannot just like make this available. Mm -hmm. We cannot make this open source, right? Mm -hmm. So I reached out to her and said, you know, I want to do this for, for Sam. And first they were kind of skeptical, but then we started working. And we made it happen. And that's how uh, Sam became the first kid in the world, which was kind of scary. People were skeptical. Even my own wife was just like, you know, what are you doing? How can you trust? I mean, I insulin bet. can be like a, a deadliest drug. I mean... Why? Why are you doing this? But I, I kind of believe that, hey, you know, this is a way to do it. Uh, we either have to wait for like another five years or 10 years to have something commercially available, mm -hmm. which today we have commercially products that are mm -hmm. available. I can get them. Or we're going to do this and make sure that, you know, he has a healthy life ahead of him. And let's, you know, use the skills that you got in your university you have this great community and pretty much you know that's how this open source activity started to you know happening right is your wife a technologist no, no. okay she has a cpa but you know she's a tech savvy yeah but she's not a yeah. coder right but uh, i explained to her that you know what we were doing and how we're doing it and actually what you see here this is the the, the first version the second uh basically version of the closed loop which that Intel is the, the compute component. There's a custom board that talks to the pump. And also, you know, it uses Bluetooth to get the signal from the, the CGM here. And this was all Linux-based. And I have pictures of Sam that he put this in a TikTok box in his, you know, pocket. And he went to school. And funny enough, 
right after you know Sam started using this and we saw the same results. So we started sharing this on Twitter and more and more parents got in, interested. And somehow I think that you know with what we did following you know Dana and Scott and everybody else, uh, we kind of proved that hey, you know this is not as scary as you think. Now, getting back to the whole open source culture. So we started like, you know, doing this in a private repo early on, eventually, and then it turned to a public uh, GitHub repo. Everything is on GitHub. But the challenge was that we had many families that they wanted to do this, but they didn't have the technical knowledge. And as it went through, you know, different iteration, uh, now he's using his iPhone, uh, so there are a couple of projects. One of them is OpenAPS. OpenAPS is the one that Dana and Scott started, and eventually, you know, Sam mm -hmm, became the mm -hmm. second person who used it. Uh, then there was a second effort by another great uh, software developer, Nate. Uh, it's called Loop, which is the one that we're using today. And then uh, we had another family, uh, another community member, Pete, uh, that, you know, his daughter has type 1. And he is a hardware designer, right? So he built this custom board and named it Riley Link because his daughter's name is Riley. And again, I mean, we have people from technical, different technical background working together and Loop was created. So then we had a couple of moms and a couple of dads that they started translating all that mumbo jumbo into a human readable documentation which right now, if you go to the loop docs, uh, it's on GitHub, and it's like a, a living document that gets constantly updated. But anybody without a single knowledge of computer coding, they can build their own artificial pancreas. So when you think about liability, that's the next question that, you know, hey, what about FDA and this and that? Uh, the way we look at it is that I cannot make this for you, but you can go read the documentation and build it for yourself. Yeah. Right. And everybody kind of paid forward. That's how, you know, the documentation gets better. The solution gets better. And I think we have close to like 5,000 people or families that currently they're doing this open source uh, closed loop, either open APS or loop. We have an Android base of it, uh, mainly in Europe. So it's huge. Now, when you think about What's next? A couple of things happened. So Dana started this uh, community effort to use this data because now we're talking about the insight mm -hmm. to use this data for research. And that's what she's been focusing on for the, the past. The data from, from Sam, data that's from coming all these from children. All the children, everybody that is using and it. Everyone's okay. And that's yeah. part of the open source community. Everyone's yes, like, exactly. this data is going to be used for research. Yep. So uh, Excellent. We basically reached out to the community, and if you opt in, you share your data, and now they're using it for different uh, uh, research. And they presented, you know, multiple uh, sessions at the ADA, which is, you know, the most important uh, uh, conference for diabetes. And it's helping device manufacturers or, you know, people that are involved, and that's their business to be able to even leverage this data to make their product better. And... The best part of it is that this we are not waiting effort. 
is pushing the industry to do more and become better and work with each other. And we had a couple of spinoffs. There are lots of companies, two or three of them, that more start as a startup. But you have like founding members of Night Scout or, you know, of this bigger community that now they're doing, you know, more impactful stuff versus mm-hmm. just doing the open source part of this. And the way I see it, you know, future is just bright because now we have all these companies starting talking to each other, talking about being open. You have Dexcom, you know, working with a nonprofit organization that uh, is doing a similar things called Tidepool. They're bringing in Medtronic. They're bringing like, you know, Omnipod. So you have all these different devices that now the manufacturers are okay to open this up so you can have them talking to each other. And at the end of the day, it will give you as a consumer a choice of what you want to use versus being boxed into one specific solution. That's that's crazy. I mean, we're in this world right now. I mean, in the last several weeks, where, you know, we have uh, politicians on both sides of the line talking a lot of big talk about breaking up big tech. Big tech is evil. Getting the, the Federal Trade Commission involved, which is supposed to protect against monopolies, not uh, the, the the bad usage of you know privacy users data and things like that. But all these something needs to be done. But there's all these mm-hmm. different conversations about what's going on with big tech in a bad way. But in the middle of all this, I mean, we're talking a lot deeper about what it means to be human and how it, what it means to truly um, give back to community. And and I think that's inherent in us as a species. But it it just blows my mind that you started off with, we need to come together and form a coalition and solve this problem, and then you solve the problem. Oh, by the way, this model that we used by coming together, now we have this this currency, we have data, which is valuable. You know, data is the new oil, whatever, the yep. new gold, data is the auction for AI, all these different things. And now you're sharing this data with these, these massive enterprise businesses that everyone thinks is probably evil. And they're... <laughs> They're using this data and it, and it's teaching them how to be for, just to be different and changing their culture. I mean, that's like how that's an amazing feat. To, to me, if somebody comes to me and said, you know, hey, what's the value of data or what is this hype about machine learning or artificial intelligence? Uh, for me, the real usage of it is that diabetes is all about numbers and math mm-hmm. and data, right? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I can write a simple algorithm that can make a prediction that, you know, based on this much insulin or, you know, this much carb, his blood glucose is going to be in this range for the next half an hour. But if I have that larger pool of data, I have the compute power that I can now use machine learning, use other factors like, you know, weight, weight, age, you know, Weather, uh, everything. are you doing workout or you're not doing workout? Uh, Last time that you had Big Mac at McDonald's, you know, your your body reaction to insulin and the carb mm-hmm. like this. And then be able to predict that, hey, you know, in the next two hours or three hours, your blood glucose is going to be in this range. It gives me more flexibility to better manage this. Uh, so we have to take Sam every six months for his checkup. And one of the things that they look into is their uh, the Patients A1C average blood glucose, right? And also the deviation. Because uh, when you look at your, if you put the sensor with a working pancreas, you have a pretty like 
straight line, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody who has diabetes, if it's not being controlled, they have this roller coaster, right? They go up and they crash. So your goal is to kind of reduce the deviation so you can get it to that, you know, flat line. And then the average uh, A1C for somebody who has diabetes in his age, he's like 14 right now, is about like 7.5. Uh, ever since we started this closed loop, he's been hovering between 5.5 to 6.5, which is like like a normal person without diabetes. Wow. So, so there's a device on him, and not only is it monitoring his activity and it's monitoring his levels, uh, his glucose levels, it's also monitor. It's also administering insulin to him yes. in real time. Yep. And all these things are just happening Yeah, in and real every time. time something happens, by using Azure in my case, I get a notification on my watch like, hey, you know, like you can see it here. Uh, his number is kind of low, so we cut the insulin. So I get a notification from his phone through the cloud on my watch. And that helps me to kind of understand if, you know, he needs additional help. The, the goal for this is for them, for anybody with type 1 diabetes, especially kids and, you know, teenagers, to be by themselves and feel independent. So they don't feel that everybody needs to watch them yeah. and for them to feel normal. And that's uh, the biggest value that they get. And of course, there are you know uh, short-term complication and long-term complication, uh, things like blindness. You know, uh, you might lose your limp, and there are lots of other stuff that. Uh, fortunately, these days, with all these solutions that we have for them, hopefully they're not going to go through this in their adult ages. And that's my goal. I want to make sure that he has a healthy life ahead of him. And he always jokes with me, just like, "Hey, you know, my A1C is better than you." Stop like <laughs> nagging at me about this and that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and realistically, in, in your mind, you're saying, "You little bastard!" I, I say, "I saved your life." <laughs> Pain in the ass. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as, as fathers know. <laughs> you ask about Alexa. So uh, one of the things that happened, uh, and again, these are all community based, right? Uh, not a single person can take uh, credit for everything that is happening. Everybody has like a part. Again, that's the whole paid forward. So uh, one of the things that happened about a year and a half ago was that a couple of developers had worked on building a skill for Alexa. And basically what this does, it allows me to get the real-time data. So imagine somebody who has diabetes, they may have some, you know, uh, vision impairment or, you know, something that they cannot look at the screen or look at the watch. Mm -hmm. So with that they can have that communication and get the data from Azure or, you know, Google, Amazon, wherever, you know, you host this application because it's open source. So the way it works, I'm going to do it right in front of you. Alexa, ask Night Scout, how am I doing? 58 and holding as of four minutes ago. Your temp basal of zero units per hour will end in two minutes and you have 5.22 units of insulin on board. So pretty much we call an API. We get the data from a NoSQL data base on Azure, all coming from a sensor from the edge. And now you can do more stuff. For example, Alexa, ask Night Scout, what is the loop forecast? According to the loop forecast, you are expected to be between 49 and 58 over the next in 26 minutes. So now what happens is that 
because you know we're predicting that he may go low, we cut the insulin, and again everything is automated. So probably he is playing uh, Fortnite or Battlefront, <laughs> not even caring what's going on. Yeah. And to me, this is the power of data. This is the power of open source. This is power of interoperability. And one thing that I can tell you is in Microsoft, and I'm sure you know it's the same thing in other companies, we have people that they do care about using technology for a, a good cause, for a common good, mm-hmm. all the way up to Satya. So uh, when he comes and say, hey, you know, at Microsoft, you're here about empowering organization and individuals to do better. This is it. This is an example. Uh, one thing that I recommend for your audience, uh, Scott Hanselman has a great talk uh, that talks about his journey with diabetes. And again, he's another uh, one of the founding members of this community. He's been doing uh, things related to diabetes from like way back. Uh, he always has this example of like, you know, a, a palm device that he used to build software for it. And I always ask Sam that, hey, you know, nobody understand this disease unless, you know, you have it. But I'm trying to help you, but maybe you should listen to somebody like Scott. And that will give you the insight that how important it is for you in this age and in this era to have access to all this technology. And for companies like Microsoft, that they invest, and again, this is just one example of so many different things. You know what we're doing in healthcare and you know in other industries, but it's not a hype. So data, machine learning, artificial intelligence is real, and as long as we bring the people together with the right skill, we can do some like major impacts to the community. And and I was even I think you sent me this link in uh, Microsoft Build, which is a it's a essentially a, a massive developer conference mm-hmm. where all these app developers come. Yep. This is probably your Christmas time, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Easy Glucose was a, a a product or a solution built by this this young man Brian Brian Ching mm-hmm. out of uh, UCLA. He won the the prize. Yeah. yeah. So there's a there's a national competition. Mm-hmm. Um, to called Imagine Cup, where yeah. they're coming up with these different solutions that are essentially um, just very good for the human species. Yeah. And he won the national uh, competition, and he went and took it and won the worldwide competition. It's hosted by Microsoft. Um, and he won like some $100,000 for the global. Um, he got $50,000 in Azure consumption credits and a mentoring session with Satya Nadella, the CEO. And what he designed was a non-invasive diabetic reading device. Yeah, just app it, you know, take a picture of your eye and based on like, you know, the the movement and the changes, he has a, a machine learning algorithm and he's a UCLA student, right? You know? Uh, yeah. and what happened? He wanted, I believe, wanted to help uh, his grandmother that has diabetes, type two diabetes. So everything starts with just a uh, how can I help? How can I make somebody's life better? And you put the data, you put the technology together, and bam, you know, magic happens. So really cool. Just a really cool topic. So what's in so you have this you have this high degree of energy and you just have this love for technology. Um I mean, where did that where did all that come from? You know, you, I know, so you, you're educated at Islamic Azad University in Iran. Uh, and then you, obviously you had a pretty hardcore 
father that was pushing you. Um, and obviously you talked about, you know, being with your wife and I'm sure she's a big component of these, but so all these, all these different variables that are coming together, but you have a great amount of energy and you're constantly trying to solve these problems. And it seems like I've never seen you frustrated or in a bad mood. Like how, like how, what's, what's empowered you to be able to have this perspective on technology and solving problems? Um, great question. So very simple. Uh, as a parent, uh, the worst thing that can happen to you is to hear something like this, like a condition, a chronic condition uh, that can impact your kid for the rest of his or her life, right? Uh, so every time I'm challenged at work, like, you know, a project or, you know, you're frustrated or, you know, could be so many different things, right? I think what can be worse then that night that he was diagnosed and they came to us and they gave us the news, right? Could be worse. There are far worse like conditions that people deal with. I think that's a human nature. I mean, when you when you deal with something like this, every other thing that can be like semi-important prior to that diagnosis becomes irrelevant. So that by itself, that's my secret sauce, right? You know, uh, I'm being asked to do something that I haven't done. Of course, you know, I get stressed out. Oh, this. And then you think, okay, what's going to be worse? And then all of a sudden, everything turns to something very simple. So that was a, tipi- that was a tipping point for you where your DNA just got mm-hmm. re-engineered. And you've, Absolutely. And you've been a different person since oh, that time? Uh, 100%. So the person I, I see is a different person than you were before? I wasn't that bad, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, um, it changes your perspective. Uh, again, you've read Satya's book, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He kind of opens up about his personal life. And uh, here's another thing. like uh, The other aspect of it is that when you have the ability to share your vulnerabilities to others, uh, that becomes something very positive and kind of opens your mind in terms of how you can make the impact to make others better, right? Uh, there are so many people that they don't want to share about the hardship that they're going through could be so many different things. For me, going to the community, going to social networks, sharing, learning from others, that was something that, hey, you know, it's okay, this happened. Now, this is not the end of the world. Again, try to be better versus bitter, right? Mm-hmm. And from time to time, I hear from people reaching out that, hey, you know, that single tweet that you did uh, on your Twitter with a picture of Sam at school, that was the, the motivation for me to go and do the same thing for my daughter or for my son. And those people, now they're even more active than I am, right? So it kind of is contagious and it continues. So what do you, what do, you do to learn? Because... Let's say this happened four years ago. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you're in you're in a space, I and mean, uh-huh. we're surrounded by like the most top mm-hmm. of the line, leading edge technology. I mean, we're looking <laughs> we're looking at this this crazy chart mm-hmm. in front of us. You're getting notifications about your son's levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is pretty top tier engineering stuff. I mean, what is like? How do you keep learning, and how do you stay up on this different stuff? And you're now you're managing essentially a staff here at the MTC and you're taking some new leadership roles on 
and you're getting in front of customers constantly and, and challenging them on how to make themselves better. Um, what like what what are you doing on your on your time on your time so that, to that, yep I mean accelerate your learning. So that challenger training that we all went through, I think it was last year, right? Uh, it's all about like you need to keep challenging yourself. You never settle with something that you already gained and you feel comfortable. So you always kind of kicking yourself to go to that uh, uncomfortable place, right? And to me, being hands-on is the, the most important thing. For me, uh, the way I learned how to work with Azure, it wasn't you know working on a Contoso demo. It was building something real. For, for me, the need was, hey, I love this open source project, Night Scout, but I want to do more, right? Mm-hmm. Let's use Azure. So I started learning about components of Azure, how to write code. And interestingly enough, you know, that has been helping me kind of sharing that knowledge with the customers. And the other thing is, whenever I have customer, you've been with me in newer session with your customers at the MTC, I always start with, you know, something personal. And this is my story. This is my uh, restarting point. So when you talk about hit refresh, which was the title of Satya's book, this is for me that night at the hospital was the time that I had to refresh my personality, the way I look at life, the way I can make impact to others. And every person has that moment at some point. It's just making sure that you're going to capitalize on it and helping yourself, your loved one, and then the, the broader community as well. And I was just going to ask you that. Like, I, I'm so glad that you covered that because a lot of people are afraid of their jobs. They're afraid of not being able to learn fast enough. I mean, I'm not 40 yet, but there's folks that are in their low to mid to late 40s, getting into their 50s, and they talk to me you know, behind closed doors about they're fearful of ageism. They're fearful of not being able to learn fast enough, especially with things accelerating as fast as they are, but you're bringing something a lot more personal to this. And that is, it's a good driver for how people should look at even learning or technology. What, what really drives them to, to learn more, to f- learn faster. What are they passionate about? And then getting your, involving your hands in it and really building it themselves. I mean, there's and, some and, constants and, here. That I'm and here's another point. Like this is the reason I look at, the, the notion of open source is more like a cultural thing versus just a, a thing, is that we should not ever feel that we are alone and we can do everything by ourselves. There is always a community that you can join, you can participate, you can add value, but in the meantime, leverage from the work that they already done. And this whole thing about you know building on shoulder of giants, this is this is it, right? I got involved with diabetes four years ago. Uh, before me, there were a lot of people inside Microsoft. I started to kind of get to know them because we kind of started getting connected through this condition. That was a commonality. Uh, I knew Scott like as somebody who was doing .NET forever, right? Mm-hmm. I never knew that he had he has type one, right? But this kind of connected us together and. There's so many different or, you know, many examples like this. And diabetes is just like one condition. 
And I'm sure if you look at other big companies, there are similar stories that, you know, you hear about them or, you know, you read about them. It's just like we're getting to a point that everybody kind of coming together for the common good. So I love when I see, like, Microsoft partners with Google to work on some open source projects. Mm-hmm. Or Google uses our product, like, you know, we just do code. I mean, five years ago, 10 years ago, who would have thought, right? Yeah. So I think future is bright, and I think uh, we are going to a very uh, awesome route that has been led by our leaders and everybody else, and I think this is the best time to be in this field. Yeah. I think culturally, interoperability is that's at your core. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm sensing from you. Yep. I mean, and it, it makes so much sense, especially, I mean, I was talking to uh, a leader at Microsoft, Sarah Nagy. And Sarah was, uh, she kind of pinged me and she said, hey, I, I'd like to start a blog or a podcast or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, sure, what are, you, what are you doing? And she wanted to get some advice. And, I, and she said, well, I'm interviewing these doctors um, about diabetes. And I'm like, you got to talk to Ali. And she's like, who's Ali? Send her your video. Um, on LinkedIn, and she—I mean, think she got in touch. Yeah, with yeah, we, we we we've been in contact ever since. Right? It's the power of social leverage and, and the network effects of all these different things. So yeah, it's so I mean, important to share. Absolutely, and again, uh, even when I deal with customers here, they come here. Most of the time, when I share this story, there is somebody in the audience that either has type one or knows somebody, and then they reach out. Hey, you know, can you share? How can we do this for you know our friends and families and. Again, that's the whole notion of paying it forward, right? Mm-hmm. And hope is they're going to go and do the same thing. And that's how we started when we did the, the closed group. Started with like one couple. Sam became the third, the second person. And then after that, you know, everybody else kind of, they started joining the club. Uh, I think it was a year and a half ago. I heard that uh, a cardiologist in Seattle, uh, he did it for his one-year-old daughter and if you go and look for the we are not waiting hashtag on Twitter, every day you see a lot of story and, you know, how people sharing, how they're helping each other. And this is like a worldwide effort. So it's not just in the U.S. This is just such a great story. Really, really great story. Really appreciate you sharing this, Ali. And um, I'm looking forward to learning more from you and watching you teach customers and just seeing you walk around this place with just so much energy and heart and everything that you do. And we love, we love having you on the team. No, thank you for your time. This is great. I enjoy your podcast. I'm a member, so continue doing it and looking forward to have this more with you. And then if folks want to reach out to you, I'm going to put all the different links. Yep. So um, I'm always on Twitter, okay. Ali Mazahiri. And if you can share, that would be great. Also, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So uh, anybody who has question or you know suggestion, I'm more than glad to have a conversation with them. Okay, great. And you can always find me at the MTC. This is my second home. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a good home to be in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Ali. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us in the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at the 
The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.